Hey everybody, welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. As you all know, I'm Jessica Levinson, a professor at Loyola Law School, and this episode is part of a program that we put on at Loyola Law School called the Journalist Law School. This year it was virtual, and we had a number of really exciting panels. One of them dealt with disinformation, what it is and what to do about it. And we were lucky enough to get Renee DeResta as our guest to talk to us about that. So what you're going to hear now is my panel with her, where I basically ask her a series of questions that I hope are your questions and a series of questions about, okay, well, here's what disinformation is. What do we do about it? So I hope you enjoy this conversation that's part of Loyola Law School's Journalist Law School, and we will be back to our regularly scheduled programming for our next episode. First question, I hear these terms used interchangeably. I hear misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, fake news. Do they all basically mean the same thing or do they mean different things? No, there's some variation there. And I think that um, we're trying to, as we have a much better understanding of of what's happening to the information ecosystem now in 2021 versus when some of this, uh, when some of this work started in the 2014, 2015 timeframe, getting the term right actually does uh, matter. So we use misinformation to refer to information that is um, usually wrong, sometimes just false or misleading, but spread very inadvertently. And so the person who is sharing it doesn't know that what they're sharing is false, misleading, or wrong. Uh, They're sharing it usually because of a genuine altruistic motivation. They want to help their community. They want to inform their community. And so that process of sharing is them serving as a conduit for information that they feel really, you know, really resonated with them and they want their community to be aware of it. Disinformation we use to refer to uh, distinction and intent. Um, information intended to influence and intended to deceive. There's some component of deception. And again, sometimes these are not falsifiable claims. So it's not that disinformation is spreading false information. Sometimes it's not falsifiable. And I'll talk about that in the context of propaganda. But sometimes it's just that the accounts that are spreading it are inauthentic, meaning they're you know fake people, personas that don't really exist. Uh, sometimes the dissemination tactics are manipulative. Um, you know, in 2016, that took the form of bots, for example, you know, fake accounts that just tried to uh, mass blast things into the ether to get them trending, you know, again, creating the perception that a lot of people thought a certain way about a topic. Um, and so, again, that that idea of um, influence through repetition, even though in this case it's false repetition. So it's not real people altruistically spreading something. It's an incentivized actor uh, deliberately manipulating the public conversation through, um, you know, through through the use of again dissemination account or or content uh, that is somehow deceptive. Propaganda is sort of where my current, um, I guess, fascination is in the sense that we frame the conversation as mis and disinformation for a very long time, but really our understanding of information with the intent to influence. That is what propaganda is, right? It is an incentivized communication. And in the last few decades, we've had a view of this as, you know, the kind of Chomsky model of some sort of top-down state-sponsored, state-controlled media. Uh, It kind of in cahoots with government and institutions manufacturing consent. And that's been our understanding of propaganda. But in earlier time periods, propaganda was really just used to mean sort of information with an agenda. It was actually quite close to marketing communications. And many of the early people who did foundational work in propaganda 
um, led PR companies really, you know, worked on, on public relations. And so this idea of what does it mean to influence somebody? What is the, what is, what does it mean to persuade someone? How to miss and disinformation intersect with this idea of propaganda, which is a centuries old, you know, since the dawn of human civilization, there has been incentivized information, there has been attempts to persuade. And so how do we think about the modern information environment and modern propaganda as a sort of unique and distinct thing that maybe doesn't look like it did, um, you know, in this sort of 1980s era Chomsky model, uh, but has in fact evolved into something new uh, in keeping with the information architecture of the day. That's really helpful in terms of disentangling what we're talking about and kind of laying the ground for what are we worried about and, you know, what frankly has kind of what's of less concern. So what is, if there is a primary, what's the primary purpose of disinformation? And I ask that because I've read that it's chaos. So it's not necessarily, and I could, this could be totally wrong, again, not my area, but it's not necessarily an ad that says Hillary Clinton did X, Y, Z. It's an ad that just makes you question the very foundation of our government and whether you can trust our elections and whether or not we're a governmental system that's just dominated by corruption and fraud, that it's something broader or does it, does it depend? So it, I would say it depends. So there's a few different, again, if we're talking about who can run a disinformation campaign, uh, it used to be really the purview of state actors, governments. Um, and that's because, again, in older communication architectures, you had to control a newspaper or control uh, broadcast media in some way, really have, have the levers of mass media to influence the public. And so, again, recognizing that it goes back centuries, we can talk about it in the context of the Cold War, this really took the form of planting stories in newspapers, right, front media, things that weren't what they seemed to be. Um, and when you planted stories in those front media properties, eventually, if you were lucky, they might get kind of laundered up the chain until they appeared in some sort of um, mass, you know, more mainstream uh, authoritative media. And that would be how you would kind of persuade the public. And it was over this, this much longer period of time. So what we generally see is some strategies take the form of persuasion, where you are trying to make people believe a thing. Again, in the Cold War, we can use the sort of canonical example of um, the CIA created AIDS at Fort Detrick. AIDS was a bioweapon, right? So, so again, making people believe, come to believe that story. That was not so much about sowing chaos. That was much more about using the story to create the perception that America was doing very, very evil things um, and to kind of launder that up the chain. But again, there was this very specific narrative that they wanted to see amplified, that they wanted to see take shape. Uh, and so they, so that was the, the process by which, um, by which that was executed in the, you know, in, in the 1960s through 1980s timeframe. And so that dynamic um, of, of persuading, it requires someone to trust the source. You're not going to be persuaded by some random egg account you see on Twitter, right? So you have to, in order to run a persuasion campaign, there has to be a degree of trust with the publication. And so that's doing those types of operations requires years of laying the groundwork to build that trust. And interestingly, we do see Russia committing to that particular form of operational, of, of operational um, style, that, that sort of tactical playbook. 
What you more often see, though, is the recognition that we live in a time where there's this glut of information. There's always a million stories happening on social media. There's always something that people can be paying attention to. And so you can distract people instead. And so the disinformation campaign might take the form of throwing a million different conflicting explanations for an event or funnel and waiting to see what sticks. And it cre- this also creates the challenge for people of when you flood the zone, when you use this distraction style tactic, it makes it really hard for people to know what's true. So they don't need to be persuaded of a particular argument. They just need to feel that this is too much for them to figure out. This requires too much time to think about. There are so many conflicting explanations. Who can possibly know what's true? And so it creates almost sort of like a, a cognitive um, DDoS, cognitive, you know, kind of denial of service, if you will, where people have to, uh, you know, there's so much effort required to try to figure out what's actually happening uh, that it actually, you know, most people are just sort of more incentivized to give up and do something else. And again, we do see state actors running those types of campaigns too. We've seen that from China. We've seen that from Saudi Arabia. So there's different styles of operation, but roughly speaking, sometimes you're trying to persuade, sometimes you're trying to distract. And that thing that you that you referred um, that you alluded to, the idea of like societal division, um, you know, the point is not necessarily Hillary Clinton in the the Russian example that that you alluded to. Um, one of the things that we really see is you can develop those persuasive relationships with people if you really entrench them in their identity or their pre-existing beliefs. So you're not trying to nudge them way far afield. You're not trying to fundamentally change their mind. What you're instead doing, and what Russia did, was you segment society and you position the segments in fundamental opposition to each other. And by entrenching each segment in its existing beliefs and nudging them very, very, very slightly, that's where you can kind of facilitate that tension by entrenching two distinct groups in their own identities and then casting them as uh, fundamentally opposed to the other. Yeah, that's so interesting. And that really helps think through so much of what we saw um, in the lead up to the 2020 election, obviously. Can you give us some concrete examples of, it doesn't have to be in the lead up to the 2020 election. It can be just recent examples where you say, I mean, you gave us the, you know, theoretical underpinnings here. You explained what disinformation is, what the purpose is, but is there like one or two, are there one or two pieces of communication where you think, yeah, that is, if I were going to tell a five-year-old what's disinformation, I'd show them this slide or I'd show them this advertisement. You know, that's such a great question. Um, I don't think anyone's ever asked me for that that one canonical meme. <laughs> um, you know, because we divide the taxonomy even further, right, into what do you push out over broadcast media versus what do you use memes for? Memes are really persuasive. It's a very modern form of communication. It's very resonant. It takes two seconds to kind of grok the concept. It's distilled down. You hit the share button and you go. I think, again... What really resonates with people and and what I think strikes people when they see some of the the content, um, there's all these, you know, the stupid cheesy ones like Jesus and Hillary, um, sorry, Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. And if you're on, you know, it's like if you want Jesus to win, um, you're you're for Team Trump. And if you, you know, and and, and Satan is working for Hillary and this sort of, you know, sort of like cheesy things. But but what's actually in the content, if you see it's actually really funny. A lot of it is very funny. A lot of it is very resonant. And that's because not only were they making their own memes, but they were kind of pulling from hyper-partisan American media. 
And which, you know, does its own work of where we're a very divided society. We've been a very divided, polarized country for some time now. And so there's plenty of material to work with that's outside of the realm of this, um, this cheesy, um, you know, Satan and Jesus arm wrestling kind of thing. And, and what I would say is there's actually like, there's a lot of content that really speaks to people and they share it because it's funny. So I think if I were to, um, Describe in the lead up to 2020, the most important thing to understand about 2020 is the vast majority was domestic, right? The vast majority of the false and misleading information was not spread by foreign actors at all. It was that the affordances of the social media communication system mean that anyone can produce propaganda of this type today. And that is the fundamental shift from the kind of Chomsky era of the 1980s. We are no longer manufacturing consent through some top-down process of mass media and and government uh, colluding to delude the public. What we have instead is an ecosystem where anybody, any incentivized group of people can create um, political memes and can spread them and can can do so using a variety of tactics from the perfectly legitimate to the um, spam-like and manipulative. And so... The stuff that really resonates today is the things that fit into people's pre-existing frames. And that, I think, is really critical for the, for the public to understand. If you're on the right, leading into the 2020 election, you were told over and over and over again that there would be massive voter fraud. Um, there would be fake ballots. There would be dead people voting. There would be, you know, the quote-unquote busing of illegals that kind of pops up, that trope that comes up every now and then. And then all of the content that you saw was inflected by your influencers to fit into one of those pre-existing tropes and narratives that you'd been primed to believe was going to happen. So anytime you saw a meme or a story or a piece of propaganda referencing one of those things, you automatically fit that in and processed it in the frame that you were looking at. Similarly, on the left, you had um, you know, people who were talking about um, the mailboxes. The U.S. Postal Service was going to be slowed down to deliberately disenfranchise the public. Um, particularly in, uh, in in blue-leaning districts, right? And so then you would see screenshots of mailboxes. You know, there was a meme going around for a while of mailboxes, um, which people were alleging was like the Trump administration was taking the mailboxes off of every street corner, right? And that's not true. That's not what was happening. But it doesn't matter because if you were on Twitter and you saw that meme go by of all of these mailboxes, um, then you thought, oh, here it is. You know, here he here he is doing this evil thing that I was told he was going to do. And so you're inclined to be receptive to it, to process it, and without necessarily thinking critically about it, to hit the share button and to further perpetuate um, that narrative. And so I wish I could say that there's like one canonical thing, but actually part of the problem is that there's no one incident. It's the aggregation of so many incidents. It's the aggregation of you know, you can aggregate so many incidents into a narrative. And then if you're so inclined, that narrative can be shoehorned into a conspiracy theory. And that's the process that we see playing out over and over and over again. And it's really topic agnostic at this point. And, uh, and that's why I think we're in such a, um, such a confusing place in our understanding of social media, mass media, and then our responsibility, our agency as users who perpetuate in, you know, these, these processes. You just uh, led us very, um, easily into social media. And I do want to focus on that a a little bit, but I remember the mailboxes and I remember one of um, my local elected officials tweeted out like, folks, this isn't a drill. 
And, um, and I don't want to, that's a paraphrase. I don't want to subject myself to any potential liability here, but, and you had to ask, don't the mailboxes always look like that on weekends? But you're right. It fed into our pre-existing or many of the pre-existing notions that, um, what it's going to be harder to vote. Uh, people are going to try and shut down your ability to vote. And here it is, here's that picture. And of course it was a picture that you could have taken any day, the month or year before. The mailboxes always looked like that on weekends, but it fed into what we already thought, what we were already worried about. And here we go and let's push retweet and let's follow this elected official who says like, this isn't a drill, suit up everybody. Um, and that, and so much of what you just talked about, the difference of mechanisms for the dissemination of disinformation. And like, we're doing a panel on this at a journalist law school in 2021. Maybe this would have been our failing, but I wouldn't have proposed this in 2010. I wouldn't have proposed it in 2014, which is another way of saying how much has the rise of social media created or exacerbated the problem of disinformation? It does seem to me that it's changed the depth and breadth of this problem in so many different ways. So it's a, it's a new information architecture, right? So you have a new infrastructure for influence. You have a new infrastructure for reaching people very directly. That's one of the things that's really different. Um, mass and broadcast media, you know, you have this um, sort of uh, one sort of centralized institution reaching many, many, many people, millions of people, right? And now you have a many-to-many model of, of anyone who is so inclined can pick up these tools, can either become an influencer, can participate in a digital faction where they're just kind of constantly out there retweeting or sharing articles. Um, there's a lot of different ways in which people become really integral to this process. And that's one of the things that social media really made possible. So there's that, that participatory dynamic that's very, very distinct in this ecosystem, ordinary people participating, not being the passive recipients of information, but being facilitators of spreading information as well. So there's that then there's the velocity of information, right? So things are moving a lot faster and that creates some interesting challenges because media now has to decide what to put out versus what to try to fact check in advance. And so you see some sloppiness there occasionally. Um, and then unfortunately the sloppiness is on full view of the public, which means that it erodes confidence and erodes trust because if you get something wrong, there's an entire chorus of people who are going to scream about how you were wrong once. What were you wrong about that, you know, that they didn't see, right? Or what were you wrong about that you haven't acknowledged? So that dynamic of, of um, velocity and very public, uh, you know, the sort of we're, we're trying to achieve a consensus making process at internet speed in full view of the public and the public is participating in that consensus process. And that is really distinctly different than in prior eras. And that is, I think, the thing that we have to adapt to. We are much more accustomed to a model of information is uh, turned into news. You know, somehow it is verified, uh, somehow it is, you know, framed and then is put out to the public. Maybe there's a fact check after the fact, maybe there's a correction, but there is this process of, of, of news making um, that we understand in a certain format, a, a kind of, a, you know, the evolution of, of news um, through history, which I'm sure you know far better than me. But what is different now is the 
we are kind of expecting those neat consensuses to be transmitted to people or to kind of surface in some way. And what's actually happening is we're having this kind of continuous process. And so we're expecting answers in real time that don't happen in real time. And I'll use the pandemic as an example. Um, The lab leak hypothesis, for example, right? How should we think about that? How should we have thought about it when we, you know, with the evidence that we had a year ago versus six months ago versus today? Um, Masks, a huge example, again, early on in the pandemic, um, the communication about masks was not updated by the CDC or the World Health Organization. They didn't know how the disease was transmitted. They chose to use 2012 guidance from SARS. They they made some, some specific comments about um, people not needing them. And meanwhile, uh, people on the other side of that argument, where this argument was playing out, again, in full view of the public, you could just go on Twitter and you could read who you trusted already, who you followed, who you thought of as a valuable influencer, Um, if you were distrustful of mainstream media and they were telling you that masks weren't necessary because that was what they were hearing from the CDC, which in turn was trying to formulate this consensus with incomplete information. And then there was some, it seems, noble lie in there also where they were saying, well, we don't want to create a run on masks. So there were a number of different things that were happening and we were all watching this play out. Everybody was glued to their screens. And so there was this process of, of trying to arrive at a consensus about what this disease was, how this disease spread and what we should do about it that was happening in full view of the public. And that's the new normal. This is not going to go away. That is the system that we have to adapt to now. And that's where I think both media, you know, government and institutional communicators and members of the public are all gonna have to adapt a little bit toward this new ecosystem. Because per your point, things looked very different in 2010 and 2012. You know, there were certain algorithms were different, certain affordances didn't even exist yet. And uh, as that ecosystem evolves, we should expect to see, uh, you know, we should expect to have to adapt a bit to the, you know, to the to the changing information architecture of the time. I do want to, there's been a couple of questions about this and you mentioned it, but I want to focus in on it. This idea of um, not the difference between foreign actors versus domestic actors, because I think you mentioned, you know, domestic actors obviously have a huge role when it comes to disinformation, but and you mentioned it, the difference between state actors and private actors. It, maybe this is too basic of a question, but do we know percentage-wise, you know, should we be more worried about state actors than private actors? Are there state-private partnerships so that, yes. we, you know, that there are hybrids <laughs> and we can't disentangle? There are. Um, or does no, it not, you know, should we not really focus on is it state or private? Is that the wrong question? Oh man, there's so much there. No, this isn't a basic question at all. It's actually a very complicated one. So um, I'm trying to think of how to answer this without giving you like an hour long dissertation. So to answer the first question, yes, state and private actors work in concert. We see mercenary organizations hired by state actors for plausible deniability purposes. And at SIO, we have some some writing out on exactly that phenomenon, right? And Russia did it. The Internet Research Agency, what was not a Kremlin, you know, did not report up the military chain of command, unlike the GRU or some of their other intelligence agencies, which do. So the, the IRA was a privately owned enterprise, affording it a degree of plausible deniability. Um, when found out, you know, I think Putin's response was like, well, they might just, you know, these are patriotic trolls who even knows what they do, right? 
And we've seen that from uh, a lot of the operations in the Middle East, which are not targeting the U.S. This is a global phenomenon. It's important to keep that in mind. So they're targeting other countries in the region. Um, they're using uh, mercenary organizations. They're using media, social media marketing firms, sometimes unscrupulous newspapers. So there's a variety of different types of actors. So all this gets at a couple of questions, right, which is um, how should we decide which of these matter? And what I would say to that is right now, um, we did a whole series on this leading into the 2020 election that came out as an essay series on the Lawfare blog, if anyone's interested in really going deep. And we invited other scholars to weigh in on exactly this question. Are we over-indexing on foreign disinformation? Do these operations matter? Do they have an impact? And one of the things that is really distinctly different, the Internet Research Agency operation they really laid the groundwork over a period of years in the way that I described early on, creating very plausible personas. So when you received information from their accounts, it looked like you were receiving information from a person who was just like you. Most state-sponsored activity is not like that. They're not investing that time, actually. And most of the stuff that we see, particularly from China, is, is um, you know, it gets almost no engagement. It's distraction in the sense that if you were to go search for a hashtag or search for a keyword, you would find this cruft in there. But the, most of them are really running this distraction, make it too hard to find stuff type strategy because they're not investing the time in that, in that persona building, trusted relationship building process. So that is much, much, much less impactful, I would argue, than what comes from a real, true, trusted, honest, authentic, hyperpartisan faction run by real people. And what we saw in the 2020 election is that, you know, Iran and Russia were in there. You know, there were some operations that were linked to each that came out during the 2020 election. And we have a report on this at um, eipartnership.net slash report. Um, we have a whole section on the, the foreign action. Um, but overwhelmingly, it was domestic incentivized influencers who the way that they would spread false and misleading information oftentimes was with a framing that said something like big if true, right? And, and that big if true is a, you know, it's a remarkable rhetorical device um, because you're, you're simultaneously taking a step back from the very thing that you're sharing, right? You're, you're not saying like, this has happened and I, a responsible member of the, um, you know, the pseudo, the pseudo media or the demi media or whatever, you know, we call the kind of, um, citizen journalist influencer model, which is pretty unique, actually, I think, historically, that idea of like one person as media figure. Um, but that dynamic of big if true effectively says, I'm not going to take responsibility for this. I'm not standing by this as a journalist. I have, in fact, checked it myself. But it fits the narrative that I want to spread. It fits the frame that I've you know, been selling to these people. And so I'm going to share it. And because I have 3 million followers, it's going to get retweeted. It's going to be picked up by others. It's going to go viral. And then it is going to be believed. If you make a trend, you make it true. People are going to see it. It's going to resonate. And they're not going to see the fact check or the correction because their influencers are not going to share the fact check or the correction. And so you have this remarkable dynamic where what we know about propaganda historically is that in order for it to have that impact, there has to be some, some degree of, of, of belief in the content or trust in the source. And we, the most of the state-sponsored stuff doesn't have that. And so I would argue that it is actually the domestic stuff that is far, far, far more powerful in any country. It doesn't matter what country it is. Um, and, that is uh, and that is really the, the, the significant challenge because we have policies in place to deal with coordinated inauthentic behavior. We have policies in place to deal with foreign actors because there are some bright lines there. These accounts are fake. They come down. 
this uh, this dissemination pattern is manipulative. It comes, you know, the, the tweets are taken down, the Facebook pages are, are deleted. Um, this came from a state-sponsored actor. Okay, well, that's a bit beyond the pale. We can't have government trolls pretending to be American citizens. That comes down, right? You know, and so there are these bright lines there, but there are no bright lines related to massive amplification and facilitated sharing by real incentivized individuals. That is a very, very different problem. And that is not one because of our commitment to free expression that we solve with things like um, kind of heavy handed takedowns. And that's what has us in this this much more difficult conversation that we're moving into today, which is how do we think about that amplification? How do we think about your right to spread false information as an influencer? And how do we think about the impact on the public of the, uh, you know, the, the being the recipient, seeing repeated over and over again, this kind of information we, we can measuring that impact is phenomenally challenging for an outside researcher. We don't have visibility into who saw what impression and what action they took next. Only the tech platforms have that visibility. And so we are trying to make determinations about impact based on proxies like engagement or manifestations of real world behavior. Something like um, people seeing tweets about Sharpie markers and validating ballots and showing up to a protest chanting the hashtags that were uh, that were formulated in spaces online, for example. So that's that's the the challenge that faces us as we try to understand these dynamics at the moment. Well, let's get into some of those more difficult conversations, as you said, which is um, thinking about I think we've laid out very well the problems. All you've laid out very well the problems. I'm sure we could spend, um, you know, a four day conference laying out more problems. But I do want um, the journalists who are watching to be able to think a little bit about solutions and to hear from you as the expert. Um, First, and I hadn't planned on asking this, but does the solution depend on the messenger? Meaning, is there a different solution if it's state-sponsored or a hybrid state-private partnership, or if it's a, a private a form of disinformation, or does the solution depend more on the mechanism? I saw it on TV, or I read it on a website, or I saw it on social media. How should we think about the best ways to target these solutions? And then I'll ask you next, who should be the person um, implementing the solutions, or who should be the group? So I think where you see it puts you into a particular um, again, kind of frame of mind or a degree of receptivity, right? If you um, see something, psychological research kind of consistently shows, again, do you trust the source? Um, have you chosen to follow or engage with this person or this content? Um, if you're on social media, are you getting something from someone who looks like you, who you consider to be a member of your peer group, right? And, um, and there are interesting dynamics around kind of group um group norms, right? You know, if, if somebody in your group, say you're in a Facebook group and it's uh, people that you, know, you have a pretty good kind of rapport with, but would you feel comfortable challenging something that you saw that you knew to be false? Or would that feel a little bit uncomfortable? You know, do you not want to rock the boat? So you choose to let it stand, right? So there's some dynamics around um, how people engage with corrections and where, where and when they engage with corrections. And some really good research on this is being done by um, David Rand and, uh, Gordon Pennycook. 
And they've had a number of papers recently where they've come out saying like, you know, running, uh, running experiments where they say like, we engaged with people on Twitter and nudged them with a correction. And here's our, you know, here's our understanding of, uh, of what happens in a variety of different scenarios. And so it's, it's good that we have um, sort of social science researchers who are trying to understand that very question. Receiving it from media again, um, one of the interesting dynamics and why I think people focus a lot on social is that it's instrumented. We can see the engagement. So there's much more of a, a heuristic there that sometimes is misleading, but at least does show us that this is the thing that went viral and 55,000 people shared it and so on and so forth. So interestingly, having that available to us, I think, makes people pay a lot more attention to social media. Whereas in mainstream media, if Tucker Carlson, for example, has an audience of somewhere between three and a half to five and a half million people, depending on which stat you read, um, if that person saying that thing on television, that is a massive audience, massive. And there are very, very few posts on social media that have that kind of engagement. Um, and yet at the same time, because the posts on social media have some traceable information where we can see what communities things hopped into, um, it creates a perception of who is seeing certain types of content and you know who it's reaching and to what extent it's being um, believed to the extent that people are forwarding it along. And so Yokai Benkler has this great book called Network Propaganda that looks exactly at that question, which is uh, to what extent is media versus social media the bigger factor and where should we be directing our attention? Um, his findings really point the finger at media, arguing that the, art, the audiences are much larger. I think it's a very interesting and evolving challenge because one of the things that we see is the rise of new platforms like TikTok, which are, re, which are reaching a very particular audience that isn't watching TV, right? And so that's where they're getting their information. That's where they're getting their news. So while right now, as we consider the American population and consumption behaviors today, we can look to more established older media I would argue actually that this phenomenon of bottom-up kind of community sense-making that happens on the internet that is then in turn um, kind of pushed out through influencer relationships is becoming increasingly important. Um, while at the moment, there is definitely this uh, top-down, bottom-up kind of ping-pong game happening. And we tried to describe this in some detail with very specific kind of case studies and examples um, in the election integrity report that we put out. Now, as promised, Renee, I do want to get into, I think I want to do um, two more questions and then get to the now 16 questions that we have, and I'll try and uh, marshal those questions together. So second to last question here is what I promised I would ask, who is best suited to try and combat this? I mean, maybe this is just way too broad to be fair, but is it you know, you mentioned we have a very strong First Amendment tradition in our country. Is it the government? Because then obviously we run into First Amendment issues. Is it uh, private groups? Or is it not trying to directly say, kind of stop that, we're taking that off of our platform, or you're not allowed to say that? Is it more let me try and teach you why you shouldn't trust that. Yeah. So I think that the answer is all of the above actually. So, you know, there have been major pivotal shifts in the past in communication architecture and technologies, major pivotal shifts in media and in our understanding of media, our understanding of news and journalism. And we can think of this as another. And so in those prior time periods, there were 
some regulatory efforts that were undertaken. There was some establishment of norms, and then there was some education component. And so that same framework, I would say right now, when we talk about it at uh, Stanford Internet Observatory, we talk about policy, education, and design. Um, and policy, education, and design, you know, policy is where you can have that come from a government, so it can be regulatory policy. Um, you can also have that be self-regulatory policy, where a tech platform makes a decision. And for example, their terms of service are a policy, right? And so um, thinking about what is the most impactful policy that a platform can create um, to deal with, I would say, some of the rapidly emerging things. A platform creates a new feature. We call that an affordance. It's given people a tool or an ability to do something. Let's use live stream as an example, right? Live streaming is new. You've never had that capability before. You, nobody could ever just, you know, you pick up the thing in your pocket, hit a button, and you're, and you're broadcasting to millions and millions of people. That's fundamentally new. That's an affordance, right? That's a tool that we've all been given. So how do we think about the policies that, that go with that affordance. Right now, for a government to weigh in on that would take a period of a couple of years, the way the American government is going. Um, but the platforms can set policies and can adapt those policies in response to how people are using them. So that policy, and this again goes back to design as well. How, is, how, is the, how are the affordances and the algorithms designed to facilitate the spread of information? If there are unintended consequences um, that is a you know that is a function again of design and policy, but at the same time, when the unintended consequences are significantly impactful for democracy or for public health, that's where the government does have a responsibility to weigh in. I would argue not on the substance of the content necessarily, but on the platform's responsibility, uh, the platform's um, responsibility to either moderate or set policies that do not lead to that unintended downstream consequence that has societal harm. Uh, again, the sort of private profit, public harm model is not new to tech communication. We have we have seen that um, that phenomenon, that framework, many times, many industries in the past. And then the final piece, I would say, education. That's where again, explaining to the public what afford what affordances give us, and then establishing and developing norms around those responsibilities. My son is seven. And the way that he uses the internet is he turns um, he uses voice control, so he almost never types. Interestingly. Um, he uses voice control and he says um, he says the word that he wants to see and then he waits to see what what Google gives him. Right. And um, and so they're teaching media literacy to seven year olds at this point, saying, you know, um, not everything you see on YouTube is real, knowing that kids are getting so much of their information from YouTube, because that's one of the things that appears at the top of Google search results. So helping children, particularly children who are you know pre reading or early readers, understand that what they're going to get from YouTube is not verified, fact-checked, authoritative information is, again, and then having parents take responsibility to also um, set guardrails and and, uh, and and create healthier systems for, for children to use it. That's the thing that's really now taught in modules in first and second grade schools. It has to be taught at, you know, communities older than that, too. <laughs> I would argue, like, you know, non-digital natives. I think um, one of the things that social science researchers find consistently is that older people uh, share more mis and disinformation. Older people are more inclined to trust uh, dodgy sites on the internet because, again, there's just not that same, you know, they, um, that same sort of uh, innate skepticism. So there is a role there for education as well. I think there's, at this point, you know, 
recommendations for government, recommendations for platforms, media too. You know, again, this idea that um, you're coming to consensus in full view of the public, right? So what does that mean? How do you adapt your output such that you have a more trusted relationship so that the public trusts you? You're going to get things wrong occasionally. And so what is the mechanism by which you're going to address that? Is, you know, we, we see these things all the time, these little moments that pop up on Twitter, like, did you know Vox changed their story from such and such? And they, you know, and that means that they didn't know, and now they're trying to cover it up, you know. And so can you turn journalism into a more transparent set of workflows, I would argue, is, is a thing that we need to see our media do. Acknowledgement of errors, acknowledgement that this is an this is an, an early consensus and we don't really have the facts yet, as opposed to, well, this person said that it's that, that it's true or not true, ergo, we're going to write our stories if that is the one authoritative voice on the subject. And so I think that we're just in this transitional period where we have these different um, stakeholders that, that participate in the formation of consensus and the spread of information. And that is, you know, that, that multi-stakeholder ecosystem, uh, everybody has a responsibility and, you know, changes that they need to make to their behavior to get us to a healthier point. Okay, let's get to, we now have 17 questions uh, and I'm going to, again, try and kind of combine them. Um, I take from your last answer, what you just said, that uh, do you believe, the question is, do you believe that media literacy would cut down on misinformation, et cetera? For example, mandatory classes in middle school, high school, and or college to educate people. I take from the answer you just gave about your seven-year-old that media literacy is key, in fact. I think it is. And, and I think it's, it's not, a, it's not a very arduous thing. I was, um, you know, my, my seven-year-old came home, he was on Zoom school for a year <laughs> and, um, and he came home with a, uh, well, came home, sorry, he was home. He, it was emailed to him, uh, a module on, um, it was, uh, does president Trudeau have a house hippo? And it was this YouTube video, um, saying that the, um, sorry, prime minister, uh, the, the prime minister had a, a uh, house hippo that he kept a pet hippo. And it was this really cute, engaging video of, you know, this false information and then a critical thinking module to try to encourage the, the kids to, um, you know, is this really possible? Do people keep hippos as pets? You know, and, and it, you know, this is what we know about hippos. They seem to eat people, you know, they, they, <laughs> they seem to be nasty animals. Would, you know, so, so how do we reconcile these facts, you know? And, um, and they do seem to get it, you know? And, and I remember when I was in, um, in high school in the nineties, right. Uh, when the internet really became kind of, um, a thing being told like Wikipedia is not a source, right. Go back and, you know, go back and read, find the original article, evaluate whether the source is credible. Um, that I think is a little bit harder to teach today. And interestingly, I would argue that Wikipedia does a great job at transparent distributed consensus. Um, but at the same time, it, it was this recognition and we were all taught about how to think about a source and how to think critically and um, you know, how to evaluate information. And I think that there are ways to do that that don't push people into reactive skepticism, um, where they believe that every source is compromised or you, can, you can't possibly know the truth unless you do firsthand research or you know, think from first principles each time something confronts you. Um, so I think that we're still working on what effective media literacy curriculums look like. But there are people like, you know, Mike Caulfield and others who are doing phenomenal work on this um, that are teaching people things like, you know, lateral searching, finding more information, you know, and, and 
Uh, and these are really valuable skills for anybody. And I think that it's critical that we start presenting them to more students. A big question that I've seen come up a couple of times in the chat, um, how can journalists overcome distrust in truth that these disinformation campaigns create? This is from Jesse Malai. Uh, how do we reestablish our credibility over all the false information at a time when everything people dislike is called quote unquote fake news? This is such a yeah, question. It is. It is a really important question. I wish I had an easy answer. I I think that I think that that transparency is really a key part of it. I can't think of another um, another way to do that because. Trust and transparency um, really go hand in hand. And the media has known this for a long time. This way you have um, financial disclosures and, you know, and a variety of, uh, you know, kind of principles and things that, that, that are laid out. Um, again, recognizing that, you know, is there a potential conflict of interest? You know, there are ways in which we have always understood that aspects of transparency increase trust in a system. And I think that as we move into this very public consensus building model, that's really where we have to be. I don't, I don't think that there's an alternative to it, actually. I think that, that this um, being able to click on a story and see the diffs, if you will, you know, the, the, the differences. There's a, it's a little bot on Twitter that does this for New York Times headlines. And it's really fascinating because you can see as the, as the story evolves, as the journalists get more information, as new facts come into play, the headline changes. And this is a thing that, you know, this bot just tweets out these changes. I think it's called maybe editing the gray lady. Um, but this bot tweets out these changes. And so you can see that, uh, that a headline has changed and sometimes quite materially, sometimes as new information has come out, the framing really significantly shifts. If you were to just go to newyorktimes.com, you'll see the latest headline. And this provides an opportunity for uh, incentivized, you know, bad faith actors to say like, look, this was the headline yesterday. Here's a screenshot and here's a screenshot today. And these two things are in conflict and the New York times lied to you. How can you trust the New York times? Right. And uh, as opposed to this is a, you know, consensus is a continuous process. It's an evolving process. It's not discrete. It's very rarely, you know, solidified at one set moment in time that you can point to sometimes that happens, but that's not the norm. And so how can we think about that, um, making that process more transparent, again, to increase trust in the journalistic um, you know, and the people who are, who are putting out the content. God, it's such an important question. Uh, question excuse me. Um, Shirley Jihad, hi, nice to see just your name. Shirley asks, I think a very similar question, um, but I'll, you know, I'll take it from a different angle. She says, with so many people falling into the vortex of disinformation, uh, like the QAnon faithful, how do we bring people back to reality? It seems whatever effort needs to be scaled up to meet the crisis. So that's a slightly different take than Jesse's question, which is how can we get people to trust the media again? This is how can we as members of society, and you know, my, my producer chatted me a, a similar question, Joe, which is basically, okay, we can gather around again. I'm at my July 4th party. And uh, my uncle, I don't have an uncle, but my fictitious uncle says to me, um, the magnetism's gone. I got the COVID vaccine, but the magnetism's gone. So that's good news. You know, he just peddles some total lie. 
what do we say? Oh man. <clears throat> yeah. That's like, that's a little outside of my work. That's like the art of empathetic correction. I'm not going to pretend that I am personally good at that. Um, it's a struggle. This is, this is also what I meant when I said the, uh, the norms piece, right? Which how do you behave in a, in a, in an online group? What is, um, you know, for me as a mom, even back in 2013, it was like, what do you do when you see like the anti-vax share, you know, <laughs> how do you respond to that? Um, so there are a couple of things that are, that are, that have changed in the last few years that I'll point to. And it used to be particularly from, um, you know, when, when recommendations, recommendation engines and, you know, you should follow, or you should join this group kind of features appeared on social platforms, particularly as Facebook began to prioritize groups, you did really see a lot of the, um, the nudges, people were being nudged into these communities that were not healthy. And, Anti-vaccine was a huge one. QAnon was another. Interestingly, the recommendation engine would cross-promote. Um, so if I, you know, I had an anti-vax research account, an account that was studying the anti-vaccine movement, and that account began to get referred into QAnon groups long before QAnon had mass mainstream media coverage. And that was because there's a, a dynamic there where if you believe in one conspiracy theory, you are more likely to believe in another. And if you believe the government is lying to you and actively covering up a you know, vast series of harms caused by vaccines, probably you're going to be more receptive to the idea that also there's a you know, vast cabal of you know, what have you, the various canons of the QAnon um, content. And so a lot of anti-vaxxers did, in fact, migrate into the QAnon groups. And so for the recommendation engine, this is a success, right? This, this particular piece of code is incentivized to maximize people converting into a group, people joining a group. And so it's, you know, its job is to prompt you with things. And if you clicked on one and joined, then you're sending a positive feedback effectively to the algorithm saying, uh, you know, yes, this is a great recommendation. And then those groups are highly, highly active. Conspiratorial groups are always like trying to uncover the truth. And so there's a lot of activity in them. They're very, very high volume. And so the dynamic that you have there is the group, you know, the, the platform has, you know, it has no idea what the content or the substance is. It just sees like, hey, there are a lot of people talking to each other in this group. It's high volume. It's high engagement. And when people join, they tend to do a lot of commenting themselves. This is a great community. Let's promote it to more people. So now in 2021, again, this unintended consequences of, of radicalizing people via the recommendation engine, you know, the sort of a um, you know, universally frowned upon today. And so the platforms have chosen to remove certain types of groups from recommendations, recognizing that uh, they were nudging people in unhealthy directions. I think Facebook, an internal document leaked saying that something like 63% of people who joined a group that the platform considered on the extreme spectrum uh, did so through a nudge from the recommendation engine. So the, recognizing that this is causally linked to people joining those groups. Um, and so that now we've broken those recruitment pathways, if you will, but now you have to deal with the fact that there are people who were recruited in and who've spent years in that echo chamber. And this is really a problem of echo chambers. Um, so now the question becomes, how do you de-radicalize? Um, how do you, you know, present, how do you empathetically, um, but clearly present to people who had been sort of sucked into those communities that they had believed something that was in fact false. And that can really be a very devastating experience for people. And so right now, um, I would I would argue that the best people to talk to to understand that process are actually people who've done work on kind of cult, you know, de, uh, cult deprogramming type researchers and psychologists. One of the key challenges that we find is that while recruiting, you know, being recruited in 
is an experience of, you know, forming a group and they're very welcoming and you feel like you're really part of things. And so there's that, that social experience. And if you were to leave the group, because you no longer believe those things, all of a sudden you're isolated. And in fact, your former community hates you. And then, so there's a lot of, you know, that, that de-radicalization process tends to happen when people are given either something else to, to meet that need. And, that is a very hard thing to do at scale. That is a very hard thing to do on the, you know, just on the internet through another recommendation. And so right now, a lot of researchers are looking at how do we think about the fact that radicalizing at scale turned out to have been a thing that was possible, but the um, de-radicalizing piece um, is not necessarily uh quite so scalable. And, and that is an area of, uh, again, kind of one of these current topics um, that's, that's very important. Um, I want to, I think, take another pass at a version of a question I've seen come up a few times from the journalists, which is, what are the best practices for social media companies? And just a quick point, um, social media companies obviously aren't subject to the First Amendment because the First Amendment prohibits the government from silencing your speech, not from a private actor from silencing your speech. So with that said, what are best practices for these big platforms? So one of the challenges that we have as outside researchers that I alluded to a little bit earlier is that we have a very difficult time gauging impact because engagement is not necessarily the same as impact. And so there's a, a few, um, you know, a few thorny things to unravel in there, which is if we're curious about how many people who saw these election fraud stories then in turn went to the Capitol on January 6th, right? That's a very, very interesting question. And that's something that we just don't have visibility into. Only the platforms do. So the first kind of order of business is really ensuring that um, that outside researchers have more visibility into some of these dynamics, because it's not only a, a kind of private constitution, if you will, or a private series of rights that are conferred upon us in the form of the affordances and the policies. Um, it's, it's that the understanding of the dynamics is still relatively opaque. And so, um, so we don't necessarily have early visibility into uh, things that turn out to be kind of unintended harms. And that is a problem. So that, that's sort of the, you know, maybe self-serving since I work in a research institution, but um, that I think is a, that the partnerships that we've tried to put together with the platforms ahead of the election now on the subject of vaccine hesitancy, I think are models for trying to, uh, to try, trying to understand that going forward. On the subject of what works, this is again, I think the, the company that's doing the best job of this right now is Twitter. Twitter has been experimenting with a variety of different types of interventions and doing so very transparently. Their account, uh, you know, the, the official Twitter corporate comms communicates out, hey, we're trying this new thing. Before you can hit the, re you know, before you can retweet something, we want you to read it. Or, you know, they're basically like, did you click through? It's like a subtle nudge. You can still go ahead and retweet it, even if you haven't read it. But there's just a little prompt that pops up that says, like, would you like to read the article first? Or you can read the article first. And so they're experimenting with these, these little nudges, these ways of changing the feature, again, using a combination of using design tools to change how people behave when confronted with particular 
prompts. There's one right now, I think, for civility, actually. You know, do you really want to tweet that <laughs> that horrible curse-filled screed at that other user? You know, maybe you might want to rephrase that, right? You know, and, and Nextdoor does this too. Um, there, there are a couple platforms that have started to try to incorporate nudges to put people into different frames of mind, make them less reactive. Don't just hit the share button, uh, but but like maybe we can make you think more consciously about, about what you're about to do. And I think that those are really fascinating ways of, of using design to try to incentivize and establish norms um, to make the information environment a bit healthier. The other thing is policy. And one of the things that we said in our election integrity report is that policy shapes propagation because policy determines what's allowed to go viral. And that's where you start to get at the battle over censorship. And this is a really remarkable conversation because per your point, there is no First Amendment right to a platform hosting your content. There's no, certainly no First Amendment right to platform amplifying or you know, algorithmically boosting your content. Um, but at the same time, these are tools of influence and they have real world impact. They confer power on the people who are most and best able to use them. And so the reframing of any interference in that power as an act of censorship oftentimes is to some extent self-serving by the politicians who are saying it because it is potentially their base that is being impacted. Um, but at the same time, does really speak to a question of, we, we have all come to believe that this is how we communicate in the virtual public square today. And so platforms should try to maximize that freedom of expression. The U.S. is, again, only one small kind of section of a user base that is on, a, on platforms that are truly global that have very different degrees of freedom of expression for ordinary citizens in ordinary places. And so there is a real, I think, good and valid desire to not um, to not quash things, to not take down accounts and to be very reluctant to act that at the same time has to be balanced, I would argue, with a, a sense of proportional harm to particular types of uh, of speech or of expression that that should potentially be dealt with in a in a you know with a sort of more walled off policy addressing them, and that's really where we are today is establishing what those things are. How are we constituting? How, how are we defining and quantifying harm? How are we deciding that a particular type of content merits a higher standard of care? Google Search did this in 2012, I think it was, uh, with a policy called "Your Money or Your Life." Recognizing that allowing, you know, whoever wins the SEO battle to come to the top of results for your query about cancer is not at all, um, you know, appropriate, recognizing that its users are there searching for information about cancer because this is a life or death decision for them. So the platform shouldn't be serving up juice fast information. And so that recognition that there are certain types of content that are profoundly impactful and deserve to be treated with a particular, uh, you know, with a policy especially tailored for them is a relatively new thing on social media. We've really only seen it over the last two years. So this is very much a sort of frontline formative stages of our kind of reckoning with this new information environment and thinking about as a society, uh, what do we want to see done here? I'm going to end with this question, which is, is there one piece of advice that you have for journalists in their effort to educate people to combat misinformation and disinformation? Is there one thing where you wish you could, you want to leave the people who are 
um, who are watching with this suggestion? I think one thing that I noticed a lot is that um, in order for something to be newsworthy, it has to, you know, novelty is a really big thing, right? Framing it as a novel thing. And I've been thinking a lot about that because a lot of what we see isn't actually a novel thing, right? <laughs> and so I would almost like to see more articles pointing back to prior context, pointing back to the history, drawing that through line, um, saying, you know, misinformation and propaganda existed. Here's how we thought about it in the past, right? Or, or um, even, even if it's in the recent past, just helping people understand I, I instead see things like this is the latest tactic that trolls use to do X, Y, Z. And, um, and, and I feel that that, that overemphasis on tactics is an interesting thing. I mean, I get it. Novelty is interesting. I'm also like, huh, well, look, look what they figured out how to do. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that really where journalism really adds value, where journalism is different than just a Twitter thread, um, is that you do have the ability to contextualize information and to, draw those through lines back and to help people understand what they're seeing in the context of a much broader picture. And I have really developed a great appreciation for, for folks at, you know, places like the Atlantic and, and um, you know, publications that are trying to do these sort of near-term history long forms. Um, and, and, and I think that they're profoundly valuable. And so I, I, uh, I really do love seeing journalism in the role of kind of context adder. I think that is a great theme to end on for today. Renee, thank you so much. I learned a lot, much of it totally terrifying, but completely worthwhile. And so we appreciate everything you're doing. All right. That was my conversation with Renee DeResta. You can find her on Twitter at no upside. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the show on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. And we wish you all a great day. I won't insert a joke here about a day filled uh, with nothing but quality information, but we wish you all a calm and wonderful day.